welcome you all with us tonight see some newish faces and some not so new faces so Emmaus Way is a community that's gathered around the gospel of Jesus Christ we've been captivated by that story and we're trying to live into that work here in Durham and our broader communities so thanks for being with us and Skylar Gudaz right yeah that's right yeah is with us tonight as our lead artist she and Jeff have kind of done a switch places sort of thing and uh, Casey's with us again as well so good to have those folks with us uh, Skylar, you have an album release coming up sometime in the... Yeah, I have a 7-inch coming out in June, and we're playing a um, release show at the Cat's Cradle, back room on June 28th. Cool. And we can find out more about your album at... Is it... Um, at my website or on Facebook. And it's all in the bulletin here. So please do check that out. We always encourage folks to try and connect with our artists, both in and outside of um, our Sunday gatherings. Um, so now we're going to do the part, uh, our community prayer, which I think we've shifted a little bit for the season. We're entering ordinary time, which will take a while. So we're going to do a new thing. So guys, would you lead us? Thank you, guys. Again, that's a part of our service. We like to get our kids involved and in sort of leading us um, as they sort of head off to do their thing in the back. So, so um, again, welcome to Emmaus Way. If you are new to us, there's a whole variety of ways you can connect with our community. Um, some quick ways to get that information. We have two different cards on the table over there in the foyer. One of them is a yellow card. Um, and that's a way to give us information about you, to get connected to our community listservs, so you can you know, be updated on things that are going on in our community. The other one's a green card, and that's got a long list of different ways that you can connect with us. Small groups, missional partnerships, um, pub group, all those sorts of things. So you can connect with those and also on our website to figure out how to plug in here. Um, and a couple specific things for this week. Um, one is, so we've been in this long process of considering a potential move to another space um, and working with Duke Memorial is over on uh, Chapel Hill Street as a space sharing partner. So one thing we've talked about doing is setting up some specific times as a community to talk that through in more detail and give you a chance to ask questions and follow through on things. So SK has a little bit of information about one opportunity there. Kale. It's in the basement of Duke Memorial. 
through the space, and then we'll also have a feedback session after church. So come before and after, or you know, one or the other. But we would love to hear your voices and have everyone be part of that process as they would like to. So yeah, So in addition to that, like any. We're sort of in an ongoing conversation about vetting the options and figuring out what each one would look like. And so ultimately, we're trying to make a decision on this in the next couple of months. Are we headed back to state reality or are we headed towards Duke Memorial? And you can connect with that process very easily by talking to any one of our lead team folks, any one of our staff folks. They'll be very aware of where we're at in the process, things to think about, a good way to get your questions into the mix, those sorts of things. So. Um, the other thing I wanted to follow up on, Dave Thiessen is not here tonight. Somebody's like he's getting married on Friday or some lame excuse. Like but anyway, um, I'll just going to step in to give a finance team update. We told you last week um, we had come in at um, $101,500 for the previous fiscal year that ended May 31st. Uh, but we had some contributions that were still outstanding, some post-dated things. So all of that has now come in, and we ended up at 105000 for the year, which meant a 14-5 May for us, so a really strong May, a really good push to the end of the year, and puts us, in terms of cash months at the bank, right at right between two and a half and three, which is pretty much right where we want to be. So a really strong place to end the year, really thankful to our community for pitching in and investing in that in that way, and we'll sort of be looking through the next couple of months to, as we, we sort of approved an interim budget, and figure out, okay, where will our long-term budget be based on that, and giving in the next couple of months, those sorts of things. So thank you very much for that. Uh, I think we'll ask, is there anything else I'm missing? Yeah, that's Religious Coalition for Nonviolent Durham. It's 5 to 5.30 in the downtown square. Yeah, that'd be a, a great way to come and sort of stand in solidarity against violence in our community. So, um, Skylar, guys, you want to come back and lead us in our songs of preparation. Well, they blew up the chicken man in Philly last night. His house too. Down on the boardwalk, getting ready for a fight. Gonna see what them racket boys can do. Now there's trouble busting in from out of state, and the DA can't get no relief. Gonna be a rumble out on the promenade, and the gambling commission's hanging on. Yeah. 
to know what's next, but what I have I've offered, and I pray for a vision and a way I cannot see. It's too heavy to carry and impossible. Thank you, Skylar. You know, that last song, um, it's a really good song of preparation for tonight. Uh, in many ways, actually, I, I don't know what the conversation was, jo- Josh, this week as we kind of picked our music. But that, uh, that long defeat song is, to some ways, is kind of the anthem of a mass way for me. And uh, there's so many people I've talked to who have said, you know, my journey of faith was really a journey of leaving faith. And I was kind of deconstructing things that I had kind of had passed on, things that I had been told were so essential to my Christianity that I found were either wrong or unimportant. You know, in, in my case, it was largely kind of the, the racial world that I grew up in. I, as a kid, I grew up in a, it was, it was a world where there were really intense segregated racial boundaries. And so I knew from age 11, 12, 13 that the, the church could be incredibly wrong on certain things. There was never a sense that this was just something that needed to be followed without question or without challenge. Uh, and, and so you challenge it and you push back and you say, there's got to be a different way and there's got to be something that's better than this. And then, and then at the very end, sometimes for many of us, we've stepped back and said, even though I've tried to kind of entirely deconstruct or entirely jettison my faith, uh, and sometimes it's a dang it moment, I, I still have faith. I, I almost wish that I didn't have it because it would be so much easier not to have this, but indeed I do. And so every time we do that song, it's kind of a, a narrative that plays in this community that I hear many times. And tonight, in just a bit, when we kind of get to the conclusion of our body series, um, that song is perfect in this way, that we've been looking at these body narratives that um, are common and need to be redone entirely. And so we're left tonight kind of saying, well, what do we have left if we're not going to follow those stories? And I'll explain that if that makes no sense to you. We've been talking about this for a few weeks. But thank you. That was a perfect setup to our conversation. Uh, This is typically the time we stand up, we greet each other, offer each other the peace of Christ. If you're around somebody that you don't know, uh, it's a good time to introduce yourself. It's also a great time to grab some snacks or coffee or, or whatever. We see these kind of social conversations as a very significant part of our encounter and prepares us to uh, kind of look at the text. You also, we're not going to read this whole text tonight, but if you're sitting there, you may want to glance at this and familiarize yourself with... Uh, 1 Corinthians 10, because I'll hit the highlights, but we won't read it all tonight, so you may want to look at that. But please, stand up, greet each other, offer each other the peace of Christ. Hey, one more as you're getting settled, and take your time getting settled. 
But um, one more reminder, next week we're going to start kind of our summer dialogue, and it is the gospel according to blank. And it's going to be kind of a fill-in-the-blanks type of week. We're going, to, we're going to use a variety of sources that give us windows into reading the gospel text. And several of those have been planned. Josh Busman, you're on the spot. What are some of those that we've got planned for the summer? So if HBO The Wire, if you've got if you've got um, Amazon Prime, you can you can watch that now. I think, yeah. Um, I believe Mark can confirm we're definitely doing gospel according to Springsteen. Is that a Mark Williams night? Yeah. 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 Uh, Tim Carlos is definitely going to do a gospel according to someone. Maybe Elvis Costello, maybe Nick Lowe. We're still working that out. I'm definitely voting for Elvis Costello, but yeah. So, Karl Marx. That's one of my nights, I think. And, and, and there's a rumor we may actually try to persuade uh, Mark Williams to speak one night and do uh, the gospel according to J.K. Rowling. But that's just, that's just been, it's been floated, Mark. You've been on vacation. So, uh, yeah, exactly. But there's several weeks open. And so given that, if you've got an idea, this is the time to kind of float that in. If you remember last week, I was saying I'm re kind of contextualizing, redeveloping the text team, the group of people that kind of gather once a week typically and look at the text, interpret it together. So uh, if you're interested in that, there's probably going to be two layers of that. There's going to be a group that meets probably on Tuesdays. That's been our typical rhythm because we need to kind of plan that so we can get um, ideas to our artists so they can plan their music. Uh, So it's not a late in the week kind of thing. But um, but the, the second layer is going to be probably an online process. So for us, this is really valuable. As we, somebody hops down on this stool each week, the idea that there's been a community of people already looking at the text, looking at the idea, all of those things. And I think the summer is going to be fantastic because one of the things that I think is the, the Gospels were intended to be read with life in mind. Jesus did not give illustrations about um, some sort of obscure science that no one understood or illustrations about uh, French post-structuralists. He talked about fishing. Uh, he talked about things that people did. Um, he, he, would have, he would have surely watched The Wire and loved it. Uh, I mean, there's no doubt about that. So, uh, so again, I'm looking forward to the summer. I think that each week we'll be able to read a specific gospel text with a powerful lens coming from your suggestions. So that is coming, and uh, I'll keep you posted about kind of reforming text group. One last little thing I did want to mention is uh, next week is going to be Dan's last week uh, at Emmaus Way. So he and Elizabeth will be here. Um, I know they want to hang out after church. Uh, we will be doing a range of things next week. And one of them will be a, a farewell with probably a fair measure of roasting involved of, of Dan, uh, as well as uh, I'm preparing kind of a little 12-minute, the gospel according to Dan Rhodes, that will be very, very sacramental, as well as uh, whatever else. So anyway, the next week is Dan and Elizabeth's last week with us. And then they'll be on their way to Chicago, which we're really excited about and really sad about as well. Uh, I know this is going to be a great job for Dan. He's been working for as long as I've known him uh, to get this job. So anyway, um, that's next week. So help me. And I want to get us back up to where we were last week. We've been doing about six or seven weeks 
um, on bodies. And we did a series on, on the body um, last fall, but we had a couple of things, particularly more, more of the intimate functions of the body that we had not focused on. So this last six or seven weeks, we've been looking particularly at narratives related to food and sexuality. So we've had that on the table. Uh, we've had a great discussion. I'm also a little nervous tonight because seriously, I mean, it was hard enough following Christina, who I thought was really fantastic two weeks ago, but uh, Sarah Busman brought the house down last week. Uh, if, if, you, if there ever was a podcast, I, I heard this described. Somebody said, you're not really a part of Emmaus Way anymore until you hear that podcast. So I don't know when that one's up because Mark's been away. Is it up yet? Or It'll be up tomorrow, but Sarah Busman has an incredible career as a retreat speaker or as a stand-up comic. Uh, so if it all starts, then this is it. But uh, Sarah was incredible. Uh, and one of the things that she did is she told a personal story that illustrated what we've been saying for a couple of weeks. Is that there's these narratives related to our bodies to food and sexuality that are narratives that lead us to a lot of trouble. Let's remember the first narrative. It's, a, it's the narrative of repression. It's the narrative that tells us that our bodies, whether we're, we're, we're thinking about our bodies sexually or our bodies in terms of consumption and food, will always lead us astray. The pure and the good life is to sometimes forget that we're embodied persons, that we have bodies. If you remember last week, I referred to this. And this theology, I should say, came with a good intent. It started in Christianity several thousand years ago because Christians wanted to be different. They wanted to be odd in the best sense of that word in terms of the empire that they were a part of. And they looked at that context and they realized that their discipleship then, it was really significant to be physically different than the way life was lived in the Roman Empire. Now the problem with that is there was this long legacy of sexual repression. I won't tell the story, but it's a fascinating story of how sexual repression even sexual renunciation uh, became part of the Christian narrative. In fact, if you're reading First um, Timothy, First Corinthians, uh, portions of the Bible, you can't quite understand those portions of the Bible if you don't get the sense that people were coming to this conviction that because they were followers of Christ, they needed to be non-sexual people because of that. So this has been happening for thousands of years, and it's been deeply encoded. Uh, maybe you had that experience of a really gruesome youth group talk in the 11th grade where you just wanted to leave the place and either, you know, take off all your clothes and run around, you know, the building, or, or you wanted to start cutting off parts. I mean, I don't know what, what happened, but, but this is a long narrative. I used the, the joke last week to say, in some ways, the legacy of that is what I call the Victorian soil approach to uh, food and sex. I mean, uh, Victorian in the sense that you probably need to put skirts on everything lest we see something and then kind of Soylent as a uh, substitute. Isn't that the stuff? That's like the liquid meal that you just drink and you, you don't need food anymore. And there's this sense that this narrative has taught us a couple of things. Um, sex 
only exists to make babies. If you're not planning for a baby to result as a part of what you're doing, then you need to not be doing it. And then secondarily, part of this is that food is only only for fuel. So if you're not fueling your body, if there's something creative happening in the preparation of food or some sort of enjoyment that's happening because of the food and the beverage that you have, then you're not really far away from something really horrible. Like dancing happening or something. I mean, you are in trouble. And so that's one legacy that we've been looking at. This idea that bodies are bad. Spirituality, good. Bodies, bad. I would suggest that the book of 1 Corinthians was written specifically to contradict that theology. But that theology has encoded itself really deeply into Christianity. Such that we feel awkward that at times we're sexual people. And we feel awkward that food is a part of a light in our lives uh, rather than just something we do to make it through the next day. But when you follow that narrative, it's natural to push back and to say, you know what? Maybe there should be absolutely no boundaries whatsoever. Maybe there should be no rules. Maybe there should be no ethic to our bodies. Um, And the problem with that is that that leads us into a different story, another story where we're absolutely obsessed with our consumptions and our consumptions entirely drive our life. Um, A person here in the community was telling me, um, they were discussing this, this is with a, a a friend at work, about what we were talking about. And this person would probably be a little bit different relationally than a lot of people here in the room. This is, person is a, a Marxist, which is not that abnormal for us, but, uh, but also a, a polyamorous person. So it's a person who's married and in a marriage, but their marriage is kind of house of cards like where there's multiple sexual partners as a part of that and this person was describing what we were talking about and you would think because there's you know we might have a caricature about that position that this person would be going absolutely there should be no sexual ethic whatsoever but the person said absolutely not I mean a society without a physical ethic without a sexual ethic without an ethic related to food is a society that's turning in on itself so it's a reminder to say that Even people who might practice a different ethic than the one you're striving to practice still recognizes that this whole idea of an obsession with our consumption without any boundary is also as dangerous as the repressive kind of of message. And if you've seen this in some ways, um, how many of you guys have been watching House of Cards? Uh, Probably half of you at least. Uh, You know, one of the things, and and, and that's a hard show for me to watch. It really gets at me. But uh, Keenan pointed this out to me, my son, that, you know, it's really a Shakespearean drama that, that is designed to show us what our lives are like when we live kind of with a tragic position. And there's so many, particularly the kind of dominant marriage in that show is, is, a, is a relationship that has boundaries, but, but, but many times those boundaries are deeply missing, physically, food, sexual, the whole nine yards. And it leads us to, you know, I watch an hour of it and I'm like, I love that and I feel so bad about the world right now is the feeling I have. I don't know whether to watch the next episode or, I don't know, jump in front of a train or something. So, uh, so nonetheless, uh, these two narratives that we've been looking at are ones that lead us um, astray. So maybe you look at our society and you see how sexually obsessed it is and how incredibly out of control and how, how food is just sometimes people are hungry, but you can probably go and buy a bottle of wine for $20,000 somewhere. And you kind of go, we've got something incredibly wrong here. Maybe we should start putting rules down. But the minute you say that, what happens? 
We better make some rules. Then we're often back in that same repressive story that we were trying to get away from in the first place. So that's what we've been talking about for several weeks is looking at this narrative of repression, acknowledging honestly that this one is encoded in Christianity so incredibly tight that you can almost not get away from it. But then we look at at, at the kind of obsession narrative that uh, fills our lives as well and, and, and we understand that we need something different from those things. Things. And here's one of the things I, I pointed out as well, is that the Christian world is really struggling with this. If you remember last week, I kind of talked about the failure of the kind of the hipster Christian way of dealing with this. Kind of the hipster method is to say, oh, dude, we can talk about food. We can talk about sex. You want to talk single malts? We can talk for the rest of the night on single malts. And then we'll start talking about beer brewing. And we'll talk about these type of things. And, and all these things are good, by the way, uh, not critiquing them. But when you get to an ethic Because we can't think of anything else, we better just go back to what was passed on to us. So it's kind of like this hipster, I can drop eight or nine F-bombs, but... If you're even thinking about masturbation, God is probably going to kill you, right? I mean, so it's, it's this idea that we can talk about it. We know that sexuality is very real in the world. We know that food is something that drives our universe. But you know what? We can't think of anything, so we better go back to the repressive method. And I don't know that that's helpful at all. So one of the things that I think will be interesting tonight is I want us to look at 1 Corinthians 10. This is a text that deals primarily with food. But I think that it's one of my favorite texts in the Bible, not because I understand it, but because I have this sense that this is a text that I need to keep working on because it, it, it guides us into a, a, a good conversation on our bodies. One that is, and remember this, in the ancient day, if we were talking about intimacies, and we've picked out two intimacies, food and sexuality, which intimacy do you think the ancient world would care the most about? Food. Our culture cares more about sex, right? I mean, we're, we're far more interested in selling cars with sex. We're far more interested in who's sleeping with whom and whose identity is formed by whom they're sleeping with or who they're not sleeping with. Or, I mean, we care about sex a lot. The ancient world had really different boundaries related to sexuality, but they cared a ton about food. It would not be scandalous for, um, for someone who was the head of the household in the ancient days to have had sex with, and it would have been a male, uh, with wives, uh, people that worked in the household, others. Um, there would have not been the same kind of heteronormative kind of expectations. It was a different world, but... If Andy, crazy Andy, went out and started having food with people of a different religion or people of a different social class, then we would all be really concerned about Andy. We'd probably pull Anita aside and say, what's going wrong with your marriage? I mean, Andy's really straying. I saw him eat with Ben Haas, and we know Ben Haas is like four or five levels below him, you know? And, and so that would have been a big, a six according to Andy. So, so you know, we've got this, so... 
so food is probably the biblical text that's going to help us the most because this was the intimacy that the New Testament revolved around. There was the sense that the New Testament church was going to fail if they did not work out how to eat and drink together. And Paul and Jesus both felt incredibly strongly is if there was not a common table, then Christianity was not going to continue on as it had been intended. So this is a significant text on who we eat with, but I think it has some things for us that will help us kind of decide or struggle, reject both the repressive narrative and the libertine narrative and find something better related to our bodies. So let's look at that text. <laughs> let's look at that text. <laughs> and I'm going to give just a few quick summaries on this. If you remember, the book of 1 Corinthians is a book about bodies. Every major section in the book is really oriented around a different part of thinking about bodies, whether it's minds versus bodies, whether it's sexual morality, marriage, food offered to idols, a body metaphor of what it means to be the people of God. This is the portion that deals with meat offered to idols. The problem being was that most of the meat in the ancient world was sold in marketplaces after it had been offered in sacrifice to idols. So what was not consumed in the temple made its way to the marketplace. Christians were really concerned about, could we eat that meat? And there was some big discussions. The Rodenheiser said, absolutely yes, it's just a block of stone up there. And the Brogans said, no, they, you can't, this is, it can't be done. And then they started saying stuff like, we can't worship together. We can't sit on sofas together anymore because you think differently about that. This was the kind of thing that was happening uh, in the ancient world. So let's look at a couple things. Flip down to verses seven through nine. Now in the writing of this, the writer tells some gruesome stories. If you want some good bedtime stuff tonight, just run your way into Numbers 14 and Numbers 22. Uh, this is the people of Israel uh, wandering through the wilderness, and God kills a lot of them in the story. I mean, it is not bedtime reading. But uh, the writer is saying, let's remember something from our past that was incredibly gruesome. Verses 7. Do not become idolaters, as some of them did. This is talking about Israel, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. Now, this is filled with all, I mean, this is the worst youth group talk of them all. You know, they, they, they committed sexual immorality and God sent snakes to consume them or to bite them or destroy them. It's not a pleasant story at all. Um, so it's a horrific illustration. And then it leads to, look at the bottom here, to verses 19 through 21. One of the strongest declarations in the New Testament. Paul, the writer of this, said things like this. I'm all things to all people. He was an intellectual. He was one that was quick to moderate at times. He was quick to say, hey, this is a complicated world that we live in. There's no moderation in this statement. What do I imply then? That food sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No! But I imply that what's pagan sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. 
I do not want you to be partners with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. Not on Tuesday. Not on Thursday. Not after a single mall. You can't do it. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. This is a really, really strong statement. Now, what is that text about? I'm going to answer that question because there's, a, I think, is a specific answer to this. It's easy for us to read it and think that it's about bodies. He mentions sexual immorality. He mentions eating and drinking. And, of course, consumption like our Eucharist would have happened in the temples, right? But I think this is a text about worship and idolatry. Not about sexuality, not about specific food. It's about sexuality and food in the larger context of idolatry. And if you remember this, the point that we made for several weeks ago was this very point coming from 1 Corinthians. The idea that if we mismanage our bodies, we become misaligned worshipers. If we are overly repressive about our bodies... It's going to be encoded in our worship lives. If we are overly libertine or uh, abusive or in any way treating other people as non-people related to our bodies. If we overconsume, if we consume food in an immoral way, if we don't care what we eat or if we don't care that this side of the room is going to eat and no one on that side of the room is going to eat. If we live that way, we become misaligned worshipers. In fact, what happens is we start worshiping something else. And interestingly, 1 Corinthians was written with that type of thing happening. One side of the room celebrating communion in a drunken feast and the other side of the room with nothing to eat and everybody walking away in one side of the room saying we just love church the other side of the room saying we're hungry and so this seems to be the point that the writer here wants to get more than anything else that our bodies can be aligned in some form of idolatry and that affects who we are or it can shape us as worshipers so keep that in mind that our worship lives are deeply constructed by how we live our bodied lives. If someone here were to make a, an intense racist comment saying, I will never share the table with an Italian, that would affect our table it would affect their worship life. It would affect the worship life of everyone in the room. So this is part of the conversation. This is significant to the writer of 1 Corinthians. Now let's switch down to verse 23. Now remember, we've had some harsh words. Snake story and eating and drinking with demons. And then in verse 23... Somebody read that, by the way, so you don't have to hear my voice all the time. Somebody grab 23 to 31 and read that. Or to 30. Somebody got that? All things are lawful, but not all things are beneficial. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Do not seek your own advantage, but that of the other. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on ground of conscience, for, quote, the earth in its fullness are the Lord's, 
If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, hey, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it out of consideration for the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I mean the other's conscience, not your own. For why should my liberty be subject to the judgment of someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why should I be denounced because of that for which I give thanks? Okay, that's a hard passage to understand. It truly is. But let's, let's break that down a little bit. There are two points in this that I think are really important for us. One is that we're being asked to eat and drink and shape our bodies based on mission. And mission being this, the unfolding graciousness of God's kingdom. Remember, that's all Jesus talked about, was this kingdom of God. It was in the language of the Jewish jubilee, a time when the world would be made more equitable, more fair, uh, a time when justice would reign, when this kingdom of God would dominate the world that we're living. Um, That was Jesus' point. And I would suggest that this passage is truly about um, eating and drinking, uh, about using our bodies with the ultimate mindset not just of avoiding idolatry, but in some way building the kingdom, participating in the kingdom of Jesus as it has been declared. Now, one of the things that happens here is this, um, this idea that um, uh, people might get offended, right? And there's the sense that who gets offended in this passage? Who do you think is being talked about as being offended? Um, it's really tricky, it could be, so the, I'll use the Rodenheisers. You guys, have, you're, you're a Christian family. You went over to dinner at, we know you can't go to the Haas's, uh, so uh, maybe you're at the Williams's, right? And somebody at the table says, you know, the meat that uh, Mark and Katrina have made, it came off their grill, but at one point it was on the grill in the, 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 the temple at one point. And so everybody looks around and says, well, you know, what are the Rodenheisers going to do? Because they've pointed out in our culture, um, when we think about offense, being offended, and we attach offended to religion, it is usually assumed, and I think read backwards, that what is imagined here is that the Christians are offended. So, I mean, I, I mean, what if, you know, you're, you're having dinner and the Rodenheisers, are, they love meat. They're getting ready to just go right at, you know, whatever Mark cooked, you know. And, and actually, it's another couple from the church that are, are there and they're kind of going, SK's there and kind of going, nah, nah, nah. You know, I'm offended. I'm watching you guys eat this meat and this is hurting my faith, so to speak. And I don't think you should do it. And her best church lady language, which she has none of. That's what we typically think of. Because we live in this rights-oriented culture that says, you know, Christianity is my right, and I'm right. My right is for you not to offend me. My right is for you never to follow something from God that doesn't look like what I do. So if if I don't like who you brought to church, or if I don't like what you do, or if I don't think you should do this, then I'm going to be offended by that. But. If that were the passage, I think the whole thing would fall on its face. Because what Paul is writing about is what if the host says, what if the Williams say, oh, I'm sorry, uh, Chelsea, 
we forgot that you guys are practicing Christians and we bought this meat in the marketplace. We have no idea where it came from, but it probably came from the temple. Um, The dialogue in the passage is, what if the uh, Williamses are offended? Because they say, you know, we think that Christians probably shouldn't eat temple cooked meat, of which they might say at that point, hey, We don't have to eat it. But in this perspective, we're so used to talking about ourselves being offended. But what Paul is talking about here is what I would call some form of missional offense. What if we did something that offends the culture around us? Because remember, the whole journey here was for the church to form a social community that was different. That, that said that there was something different, that we can expect a world that will be different. We'll expect that the coming of Christ in this world will make it all different. And so our journey is in some ways to say that we can do something different with our bodies. We can live a different life that will take us to a different place. That's our task today, to think about those things. So when you invert the offense conversation, not to people in the church saying, hey, you shouldn't do that, to the culture looking in and kind of going, why do you do that? It entirely changes the way we think about things. In fact, if you were to apply that to millions of decisions that I would suggest people have done in the name of the Lord that have offended the rest of the world, because in some way they think Jesus is going to be offended if they, I mean, you, you submit your own illustration to that because race has been justified in that way and a million other things. So I think there's a really big principle here that what we do with our bodies is supposed to be prophetic. It's supposed to declare that God is redeeming this world and not just us spiritually or ethereally but is redeeming the very substance of the world, which includes our bodies, the earth, and everything that's been created. That seems to be the key principle here, is when we're struggling with what's the right body posture in whatever decision you're thinking about, um, 1 Corinthians seems to suggest to us what the thing to think about is Jesus' gracious, jubilee, unfolding kingdom. Does this fit into that? I think there's one more principle here. Um, you guys remember the book. How many of you guys read the book? It's been out a long time. The Poisonwood Bible. It's one of my favorite novels. Barbara King Solver. Good novel. Uh, if you remember this, she is no fan of Christianity. She is someone who grew up in Africa. Uh, the, the, I think she was the child of, of doctors and aid workers. But she watched the missionaries come into probably, I think it was, is it the Congo then? I can't remember where it was, but it was in Central Africa. She watched the Christians come in, and what did they try to do? They tried to impose their body and moral sensitivities on another culture. There's an infamous scene where, um, you know, of course it has to be a a Baptist preacher from Georgia (laughs) who's brought his family to Africa, and the first thing he does is he gets off the boat, And he looks around, and heaven forbid, the women of the village are uncovered to the waist. Because they are are breastfeeding children, and no one seems to have kind of like the bikini ethic that we would have of our culture. And he is offended, and what is the first thing that he says? We're going to get these people right with God because we're going to get them clothed. <laughs> and, and a lot of the whole narrative of that text is him imposing his cultural understanding of a particular time of southern Christianity on a portion of Africa. And it doesn't work. It's abusive. 
And I would suggest that in this text, what's missing there in the Poisonwood Bible is he doesn't look at the culture that he's in and the context that he's in. And notice that this changed radically, right? We had a paragraph talking about eating and drinking with demons. The idea that participation in temple worship was so forbidden that Paul couldn't imagine that someone be a follower of Jesus and somebody who was participating in the temple life of that day. And then all of a sudden at verse 23, it gets downright negotiable. And I think the point behind this is that our social context matter dramatically as it relates to people who are looking at the kingdom and trying to figure out what is the right way to deal with our bodies, our physical lives, and even the intimacies of our bodies. Now, if you've been in Emmaus Way, and I realize that this will be language that some of you don't know, we talk a lot about this whole idea of binding and loosing. That, that we imagine that this is one of the things that happens as a part of Christian community, not just in a worship gathering, but all the time. Every time we we encounter each other downtown, at the market, uh, call each other up, text and say, please help me with something. Every time we're talking about our narratives of our lives, we've been empowered to do what, um, what was called in Matthew 18, binding and loosing. Here's the simple description of that. Binding and loosing is coming up with, binding is holding somebody to an obligation. Jeff asked me, he said, you know, Skylar called me about 10 minutes ago, and she said, I'm on fire. I need help. Uh, I'm going to ask you, Tim, do you think, I kind of said I was going to go put her out, but uh, do you think I really should do that? I would bind Jeff at that point. I would say, Jeff, you know, that seems really important. If Skylar calls you, she's the type of person who calls and says, I'm on fire and she's not on fire. She's probably on fire. I'm going to say that's a, an obligation for you to get in your car. You are the closest person to her. Take a garden hose and go put her out, right? But, but what if somebody calls or it might happen at communion tonight where somebody says, you know, I had this happen in my office. Um, a dear friend of mine um, had gotten a tattoo and her, her, her mother called her up and said, I think you're ugly. I, I mean, I really think you've become an ugly person because of this. And, and, and she's sitting across from me. We're 10 feet apart. And I'm typing away in nerdy graduate student um, I, you know, thing I could, I guess, kept typing, but I went over and hugged her and we talked about it. And another friend came over and we talked about it and we loosed her. We said that you are not obligated to adorn your body such that your mom approves of it. You're 40 years old. You're going to make some body choices at this point. You may have something pierced. You may have something uh, marked. You may not wear something. You may wear something. You may choose to, uh, you know, go to church. You may choose not to do those things, but it was an opportunity to loose her from an expectation that was very painful to her. Now, this is what we imagine that we do all the time, is we listen to each other well enough to where we hold each other to certain obligations, and we listen to certain obligations, and we say, that is not your obligation. I would suggest that this is the most important part of this text related to bodies, is that communities of people who are committed to the kingdom of God dominating the world that we live in, we need to bind and loose each other 
I know that's kind of a humorous illustration related to bodies, but, uh, but we need to bind and loose each other related to our, our physical lives. We have to talk to each other. We have to say, that's an expectation that maybe isn't re- relevant for you. That's an expectation that you might need to take seriously. That's a, a, a point of guilt that you shouldn't carry forever in your life. You could, if you could reject that, please do that. That's an offense that somebody's imposing on you rather than one that you should hold for yourself. So I'm going to pause after this, but does that make sense this whole idea of, so here's what I'm, here's how I'm reading 1 Corinthians. And I, I just kind of decided today I would do a, it's so complex, I would just do a reading of it. Is that there's three things that are really important. What is forbidden is an idolatry. That somebody comes up with their bodies, whether it's their eating life, their sexual life, or anything that you could do with your bodies. And they come to the idea of saying, I do what I want to do. That, 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 that my body life is disconnected from God. I think that that's deeply challenged. That our bodies draw us into God's creative, generous world or rejection of that. The second thing that I think this text told us is that this idea of a gracious kingdom should dominate our thinking on our bodies. And then the third point is the one I just made, is that our decisions that we make about our bodies are going to be decisions that are made in loving, honest, vulnerable, sometimes difficult, challenging kingdom context. These are the types of things. I mean, you know, think about, like, how would you talk about getting a tattoo to maybe... Grace Eford's Sunday school right now. If Grace said, I'm heading down to the docks, I'm going to get a tattoo. What would you say, Sarah? Uh, let's talk about why. <laughs> talk about why. But what if, if Grace was determined to get a tattoo and she wants you to drive her down there and Dave and, and Elizabeth can't be found? Would you drive her? Uh, no, probably not. I, I mean, I don't think that. How old's Grace? Two? She's three. She's three. Three is not tattoo age, right? It might be 16, it might be 14, at DSA it's 14, but it, you know, whatever it is, it's not three, right? So do not go grab any of the kids, except Miles maybe, and, 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 and give them tattoos today unless the parents want them. So context matters. But if somebody who was 18 said, hey, I want to get a tattoo, you might say, hey, let's go together. Let's pick something out. Why is this meaningful to you? It's not the same conversation as a three-year-old. So our social context matters dramatically. It means that we can't construct these abstract rules related to food and sexuality and then start imposing them on every situation. I, I, nothing makes me chuckle more, and this happened a few times, where you, know, you see a couple of 32-year-olds kind of get the 14-year-old conversation on sex. And you kind of go, okay, that worked really well in the eighth grade. It probably isn't the best context here, right? So now I'm giving it to you. And this is a challenge. I'm going to ask us to do for a minute. I have an idea or two. But let's do this for like six or seven minutes. The idea is that we're not supposed to finish this. This is... You know, we've talked about it in a way that you're to talk about this and do the binding and loosing. But given those principles, the things that we've talked about, all the stuff that we've talked about, what do you think? Given and try to make this as close to home as possible. Let's not render verdicts about bodies for people in northern Canada. I mean, you may know something. About, I don't know anything about northern Canada. I don't know what their bodies should be like. But what do you think? What, are, what, are, what would you bind people to? What obligations would you hold people to 
if they're trying to kind of place their bodies in the context of God's gracious kingdom, what obligations would you hold them to and what obligations would you absolve? What would, which ones would you loose? Do you have some thoughts on that? Because this is the kind of stuff that when we start thinking about bodies related to kids, related to teenagers, relating to adults like you guys, relating to all of the political moral questions that that we know that exist out there related to bodies, this is the kind of work that we're supposed to do with each other. What would be entirely wrong, I think, would be for me to come up with a body template and then give it to you. And then we'd all pretend that we were living it out. <laughs> because there's nothing I could come out with that I would do myself, quite honestly. So let's do this for a moment. What do you think? What are obligations that we would hold on to? What are ones that we should absolve each other of? And this, I mean, I realize this is a free-for-all. I haven't given you even a subject other than bodies. And I realize that this was a really brave question to ask. I have no idea who's going to speak first tonight. Yes. I think it would be, let me change your language, I don't think it would be rules. I think it would be an ethic. I think it would be a way of living rather than a rule because an ethic is something that's more permeable. Uh, A rule is something that says, uh, Jenny, never carry a red purse. And that kind of works everywhere. So. Yeah, yeah, I think that's, I think that would be hard to take a deceitful act and say, I, I, you know, I, we might could work on it and come up with an example of that, but it would be really hard to come up with something deceitful related to our bodies and say, this is a good thing to do. And all of us have kind of looked at kind of the body lives that are around us and, and some that have been shaped around deceit usually blow up on everybody around them. I think it's fantastic. Somebody else, what? Exactly. I think that's very true. Somebody else. What, what's another kind of... I mean, this is stuff we're going to talk about. Not, we don't have to finish it here, but I want to get you moving a little bit on this. SK. I mean, isn't it amazing how much of our body talk has been shaped around an abstraction so that you don't have to imagine the other person? 
I mean, you know, I did a million years as a youth, you know, a youth pastor, and the evangelical youth group kid question always was, well, like, how far is too far, right? And, you know, what I would do is usually, you know, because there's always a guy, I would draw a woman's body, you know, very uh, anatomically correct, and I would start kind of meandering, you know, here and there and all that, you know. And, I'm, and it's like, is that the stupidest thing you've ever seen a human being do? That question is a question of, like, what can I do without imagining the other person as a human being? And, you know, and so, so what you're saying is that there has to be an ethic of I always imagine the other person as a human being who has a, an ethic, a purpose, a meaning. And so what happens, in, in, in rather than sitting at the table and saying, I don't like that food. <laughs> because when you say that, it entirely cuts off the potential of how that food was chosen, prepared, and why it was prepared. But I don't like it. I don't like the taste of that food. And I would suggest that that is an ethic that drives a lot of our body ethics and our culture is the ethic of experience. I experience things I like and I don't experience things I don't like. And applying that to food means that, well, you know, there are a few things I like more than Burger King double cheeseburgers for 99 cents. But if, I mean, but there's a lot of other food that I could eat, Right. And so that's a great point. Somebody else. We'll, you know, we're gonna, I hope you'll keep talking about this, but this is, this is helpful because I think it'll, it'll drive you into the decisions we make. Yeah, and, and this, interestingly, that was an ethic that a lot of the ancient world understood better than our world. Uh, they believed in moderation. They had different sexual boundaries, but they would have asserted moderation in those boundaries. And think about, like, several things. Like, um, how many of you guys are runners or, or, or you know, like to, if, if you're a runner, you know what you've eaten, Right? I mean, you know that day. You can time it out. My, my mile time drops by 15 to 30 seconds based on what I've eaten the night before. So moderation is important. But I'm a fool. I'm sitting here with a torn hamstring because somehow I thought that this winter running 45 miles a week might be a moderate thing to do. And my hamstring said, you're 53 years old. If you run like that, you will die. You know, and so, so, you know, so again, you know, that, that there's something about my feeling like I need to run 45 miles a week. That's crazy. So that's a great principle. Somebody else. These are, and, and you know, you apply them into your own life, but these are, these are good stuff.
Absolutely. How many people here feel like they have a perfect body? Because I, I think we should probably all talk about that. <laughs> I mean, this is what Chelsea's talking about is huge. I wrote a few things down. That was one of them. I, I'll read it the, kind of the way I wrote it was this idea that I think part of our ethic has to be a, a, a deep deconstruction and challenge of the oppression that our beauty culture does to us. Because we have a very specific culture that says bodies are supposed to look a certain way. And much of that's out of our control and much of it's arbitrary. And in fact, as we talked about kind of the racial angle on this, I think that especially us, a, a, a largely, not everybody, thank goodness, but a largely white church of culturally affluent people, meaning we're, we're overeducated in some of those things, I think we need to work hard to deconstruct the perfect white body because our culture works on the perfect white body. And, and in some ways, what that does is when we play the perfect white body game, it means that everybody is constantly changing their body or they're constantly battling changes that they cannot make. Um, and so I think that's an ethic that, and, and, and there's a beauty culture in our, our culture that is, is a more powerful currency than money. And of course, the connection between money and sex is incredible. I mean, it, it, every sociologist could give you a long description of how that works. Uh, let's just say Donald Sterling, you know, and, and you can go with it from there. But again, that's a powerful point. And I think if we really try to deconstruct the, the economy of beauty in a community, that would be hard work that we would be working at. And, and that's where I think we do need tons of absolution. I think we need to be able to look at each other deeply and say you're beautiful. Anybody else? One more person. Yeah, listen. broke down the individual rights culture that we have related to our bodies, that would be so radical. I don't know what would happen. The idea that we're part of communities and our bodies are not property of ourselves, but we're deeply aligned with each other. I mean, even the idea, you read the book of Acts and whole families converting and being baptized together. For us, we look at that and say, or places I've been, that sounds like heresy to me. The idea that my body is deeply affected by your body choices is one that is, is alien to us. I'm going to list a couple of things real quick and then turn this over to Skylar um, on, uh, for confession and absolution. But I'm, and this is just a list. You've said a couple of these things. We talked about dealing with the oppression of our beauty culture and all the economics of that. I mean, you, a fascinating thing, research the, the origin of Revlon and the cosmetics companies in our, our culture. You know where they come from? They come largely from immigrant assimilation. Of, and, they're, and they're largely people like people who are Jewish, um, Irish, and others trying to prove what? That they weren't black. 
They needed to be not black in our culture because there was such a deep encoding. So we look at these deep economies in our lives, and many of them are built in, intensely on the beauty culture. Number two is uh, this idea of food, is that understanding that, um, that our f- world is organized around food production and food consumption. And food is not something that you just decide yourself, get, and consume. But the whole system of production is one that defines how governments are formed, how industries are formed. If Equity in our world can largely be reduced at times to food production and food consumption. And we live in a culture where there's just, you know, how many kinds of M&Ms do we have? I mean, much less everything else. So it's hard for us to think about this. But I think, as Elizabeth reminds us, we need to think systemically and in counterculturally related to where our food comes from, what food we buy, what food we take, realizing that we could never decide what's the best food for everybody. Because I would describe something that's great for Andy that might be poison for Brandon. We, we, our bodies are different, but that would be a second one. A third would be this. I think we have to come to grips. This is part of just taking our bodies back is to understand that we were created as sexual beings and sexual people and that sexuality is a conversation. What, what Sarah did last week was so unbelievable because you talk so frankly about sexuality. And you guys know I have issues with appropriateness from time to time. There's, there's probably things I've said in sermons, usually the week that somebody's family's visiting or something like that. But it comes from this idea, because I thought about this as a kid, why do we not talk about the stuff we talk about everywhere else, right? And so to some degree, part of our dialogue as a community is we're going to have to step into areas that are either so shame-based, so rule-based, or so failure-based that we just can't talk about them. And somehow we've got to figure out how to talk about those things. The last one is this. And just in terms of sexuality, I think part of what First Corinthians challenges us is to fashion a contextual sexuality that is related to the kingdom of God. Not landing on a foreign shore and being offended because somebody's shirt is off, but a contextual sexuality that is related to the world that we live in and our sense of oddness, maybe, or even kingdom proclamation in the world that we live in. And so I think there's some things we need to be careful about. I think we need to be careful not to worship virginity. Because what does the worship of virginity do? It ultimately says, the, the assumption is, now it's kind of a humorous assumption, that everybody that's married is having sex. <laughs> but, and we learn that. That's, that's a bad assumption to make or a simple assumption to make. But the, the, our cult of virginity tends to, particularly for women, turn them into sluts before or after they're married. Because it's this, this, so we need to be careful about that, this contextual sexuality. We need to be careful with what Elizabeth said, is we live in a culture that any kind of experience cannot be challenged. No matter how that experience, you know, that's largely the sexual ethic of our culture is, do not critique my experience as long as it doesn't fit some sort of heinous crime. And when we think about you know, sexual violence, we reduce it to the heinous stuff without realizing that there's millions of sexual microaggressions that happen. Five minutes in 
a fraternity party at my fraternity house was filled with hundreds of sexual microaggressions, of commenting on women's bodies, uh, the desirability of women, the undesirability of women, or, I mean, you know, so, to some degree. But if you would have challenged everybody in my fraternity, they would have said, hey, dude, we're not doing that kind of crazy stuff. We're just chatting up, you know, whoever this. So to some degree, we've got to have a contextual sexuality that doesn't worship virginity, that doesn't worship experience, doesn't worship entitlement. Because in our culture, sex is an entitlement. You, are, you deserve it. Somebody needs to give it to you now, right? And, and, it, and, if, and, it, and, and it means that we're perpetually sexually disappointed with our partners, with the world around us. The Santa Barbara shooting, if anything, is an example of a sexual entitlement in addition to a million other things going wrong. And we also need a contextual sexuality that does not idolize marriage. This is one of the real challenges of the Christian culture is that part of our talking about sex without talking about sex is we talk about marriage. And we turn marriage into this ultimate station in life. Um, and the challenge with that is not a lot of people fit into that station of life. 51% of all marriages end in divorce. A lot of people do not get married. This is not a culture. The Bible assumes marriage because marriage was not a volitional choice. So we read this marriage thing and we encode it in our lives. And, and, and it, it produces this incredible damaging ethic. And a couple of these things like marriage, virginity, experience, and entitlement. I hate to say it, but it, no, I, I don't hate to say it. I think it's important to be said is that women are losers in that conversation uh, more than men in that conversation. Because a lot of our sexual ethic in some way produces a construct that women are sexually wrong. Even if they're sexually right, what are they going to do? They're going to get old and then they're going to get sexually wrong again, right? Or they are virginal and to be desired, but once they've been desired, then they're not that anymore. And so we forget that how we talk about sex and how we live out our sexuality, how we live out our food lives, how we consume without at times the thought of who is not consuming is constructing a world where we're not odd at all. And I think our challenge to be part of God's kingdom is that we need to be desperately odd related to our bodies. At times, it's going to be some honesty <laughs> that people don't talk about. So you're going to come in here and we're going to talk about stuff that no one feels even comfortable talking about, but we feel like we need to do it. We're going to talk about our, our ethics, not just about food and bodies and things like that, but we're going to imagine that they're not a possession of ours, but there's something that involves lots of other lives. We're going to understand that most of us have had violence done to each other, to ourselves, and some to great extremes, and that this is never a comfortable subject because of, of the way that we've been treated in the world. Many of you guys have faced intense rejection or abuse or many types of things, and the statistics in a collegiate community just on unwanted sex are overwhelming. So that's my challenge on this is, and I think 1 Corinthians 10 is a powerful text because it challenges us to really think about what are the things that will drive our oddness. So um, I invite us now to confession and absolution. I apologize that that went a little longer than it should have. But, um, but, um, but again, these are things that I hope I'm giving to you to be a part of our dialogical life together.
guys, but uh, since Thursday, our television has pretty much remained on one of two channels that are playing the World Cup. Um, we're big fans of soccer, and it's been interesting watching it, I think, particularly that we're coming out of uh, the NBA season, the NBA playoffs finishing up this week, because one of the things that I think I find so attractive about soccer, uh, when you contrast it with something like basketball, is that soccer is not a game of technicalities in the same way that basketball is. It's impossible to imagine in a soccer game someone using the sort of powerful zoom camera to look and see, oh, did the one of his cleats hit on the out-of-bounds line? We're calling the play back uh, because of that. Let's go to the instant replay and reverse the call, right? In the same way that it's impossible to imagine in, say, uh, an NBA game, the referee just saying, well, you know what, let's just play five extra minutes, right? Let's just add five <laughs> minutes to the end of the clock. <laughs> Stoppage time, we'll keep playing, and you know, then I'll just blow the whistle at some point, and that'll be the end of the game, right? And I think, in some ways, that lack of technicality is something that makes it frustrating for us as Americans to watch the game of soccer. Because we're never exactly sure, well, what's the rule here? There has to be a rule, a hard and fast rule. They said five minutes of stoppage time, but it's five minutes and 30 seconds, and they haven't blown the whistle yet. Why haven't they done that? Because I think we're so used to operating out of a sense of technicality. We want there to be hard and fast rules, and when we break them, we want to have broken them. And we haven't broken them. We, we haven't broken them. Technically, we didn't do anything wrong, right? Technically, I didn't inhale Technically, she didn't say no. Technically, I think we're okay. What we see in the passage tonight is that it's not about technicalities. It doesn't matter technically whether the meat was sacrificed to idols or not. What matters is the relationship. What we're looking for is to be in relationship with other people. And what we're searching for is not being right. It's not even necessarily being righteous. What we're searching for is being reconciled with other people, with the people in this community, with the people in Durham, and with the people uh, that we encounter in our day-to-day -day lives. 
One of the places that we get to practice this, that we get to live out this reconciliation every week is at the table. So I invite you, as you break the bread for one another, saying the body of Christ broken for you, as you pour wine and juice for one another, saying the blood of Christ shed for you, there's no wrong way to do it. Okay? We're not here because you need to technically tear exactly one square inch off the loaf and make sure that you don't pour more than half a Dixie cup of wine or juice. But share in abundance and be reconciled to one another because that is what this table is set for every week. As you go to the table, um, I'm going to ask the, the band to play the song of benediction. So feel free, linger at your seat, sing, come to the table, do whatever you want. Um, but do it in the knowledge that we are a community that is designed to be reconciled to one another and to the world. Amen. Still